and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 31. Very, very exciting episode. I have to tell you, uh, I have a guest this week that is a real... Uh, inspiration for me. He is somebody whose work I follow closely and who I have the utmost respect for. And I will tell you who that is in just a second. But before I do that, my usual plug for Counterpunch, such an important uh, website and publication these days. Um, When we look at the media, when we look at what's happening in the world, how many places can we go that we can really trust for solid uh, analysis that comes from a left perspective, but one that is not purely defined only by a monolithic ideological perspective. There's a variety of competing ideas, competing positions, sometimes in conflict with each other. It's part of what I love about Counterpunch. It is always interesting. It is always enlightening. If you agree, one of the ways that you can support Counterpunch, really support it, is by getting a subscription to the print magazine. Uh, It's an excellent publication. Always fun to get it in your mailbox. Look at the artwork, all the great columns inside very exciting. I will tell you right now, I am a subscriber. I have been for a while. I think it's totally worth it. Uh, Of course, the other thing you can do, uh, obviously, other than going through the website and giving a donation to Counterpunch, you can also help promote Counterpunch Radio on iTunes with positive reviews, sharing our links on social media, propagating Counterpunch Radio to as many people as possible so that we can really build on this alternative media perspective. Um, So, with that being said, said and all of that out of the way, I want to turn to my guest this week. I'm so excited to welcome Andre Vilcek to Counterpunch Radio. He is a philosopher. He is a writer. He is a filmmaker. He is the author of the absolutely essential, essential new book, Exposing Lies of the Empire. You must follow his work. Follow him on Twitter at Andre Vilcek. Andre Vilcek, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Eric, it's great to be on your program, and hello from Beirut, Lebanon. Very, very happy. You know, you can probably more than anybody say hello from any number of places in the world, and I would believe it. Well, yes. I mean, I uh, actually am one of these uh, uh, people who find it very difficult to reply if somebody asks, where are you from? I don't know where I'm from. I was born in Russia. I'm a naturalized U.S. citizen. I live in uh, Asia and in the Middle East. So I'm kind of uh, an internationalist. Dare uh, I say an internationalist, indeed, yes. <laughs> um, now, I want to talk, I, I, well, I have so many things I want to talk about, and I find that we have, uh, we, our views in many in many respects are simpatico in almost everything that I've ever seen you write. But for a lot of people maybe who don't know you, let's start at a very general level with your most recent book, again, Exposing Lies of the Empire. What is the book? I mean, it's a huge book. Tell us what it is, what you are attempting to put out there in the, you know, information space. What are you trying to expose for people? Well, the book, uh, first of all, weighs about five pounds and it has uh, 840 pages. Uh, What happened is um, after my dialogue with Noam Chomsky, which was uh, published as a uh, as a book and also uh, made into a film, uh, I felt that I have to continue with our uh, with our line of thoughts, and I uh, actually began uh, once again traveling all over the world. And this time, it took about three years 
visiting all parts of the planet where I believe that the that the empire uh, is trying to destroy uh, opposition and uh, actually bulldozer uh, countries and governments that were standing um, in its way. Um, so uh, the total domination of the planet, basically. So I worked in the places like South Africa, Zimbabwe, uh, uh, you know, North Korea, um, Iran, uh, Venezuela, Ecuador, uh, Cuba, you name it, China, of course. Uh, and the book is actually uh, a huge medley of stories of the people who live in the countries that are being attacked by the empire. But I was thinking also uh, uh, what makes it actually so popular, uh, because the book is selling uh, uh, strangely quite well, uh, what people like about it is because, uh, you know, uh, I'm not a journalist, I'm, or I'm not just a journalist. I'm a, uh, I'm a novelist, you know, I'm a philosopher. I make, uh, uh, I work with the stories. So actually I go to the people somewhere in Zimbabwe, and instead of just uh, writing about Mugabe, uh, I spend uh, some time in the pub or on the street or in the hospital, just talking to people, let them speak, you know, they can uh, say whatever they want and I incorporate it to the, to the dialogue which uh, reads like a novel. It's not a novel, it's full of facts, but actually it is, uh, uh, it reads like a novel and that's, therefore it's very lively. I just came back from Iraq, uh, you know, I worked in, uh, close to Mosul actually, uh, close to the border with uh, a Mosul that is being uh, controlled by ISIS. Uh, last year I was there with the uh, Kurdish uh, uh, commander uh, of the Peshwarga army, and this year I was just writing about, uh, you know, how Kurdish, uh, uh, Iraqi Kurdistan deteriorated socially, being such a close ally of the West, it actually became uh, very, very uh, uh, you know, brutal towards its own people. Mm -hmm. So I just go to I just go to the people in the villages, and they live in front of the huge oil refinery, right? And the oil refinery is being serviced by Turkish uh, uh, road tankers. And I just go there and I talk to people and I ask them, "How is your life?" And they, "Do you get anything from this refinery?" And they just they're totally outraged, you know. And it's not just a typical journalism that is used uh, by the New York Times or by by some big newspapers when they polish everything and they have a way to to describe things. I, I call these people. I don't speak if they have something terrible to say. I uh, I allow this to to be said. And so I think this book has everything from, uh, from uh, you know, novelistic elements or fiction elements, although it's uh, backed with facts, to um, uh, poetry, uh, uh, outrage. You can find even vulgar words there, so swearing words. So it's a very interesting uh, new way of approaching the readers. And I think they like it because... You know, they are uh, our readers are tired of numbers, and they cannot imagine. You know, I can write to the, uh, in an article. I can say, look, uh, the empire massacred ten million people in the Democratic Republic of Congo, and I have a proof that they uh, it did it. I made a film, two hours uh, long film, and they read it, and it two, ten million doesn't mean anything to them. You know, you cannot imagine ten million corpses. I cannot imagine ten million 
corpses. But what matters is uh, uh, if a woman or a man or a child uh, tell you, this is my story and it's horrible, this is what happened to me and this is what they are doing to me, and this actually can touch people still, although people are getting quite hard at yeah, absolutely. I think that one, what you're getting at is something that I think is very important in this broad, uh, you know, broad arena that we might call anti-imperialism, and that is really humanizing this struggle because, to a large extent, it is oftentimes and unfortunately, even some of us who are involved in it are guilty of this. That we get wrapped up in the politics, we get wrapped up in the geopolitics, we get wrapped up in theoretical discussions and so forth, and oftentimes what gets lost is the human experience, the human struggle, the human tragedies, all of those things that make this up. And I think that that's really uh, what my guess would be, if I could speak for people who are uh, responding positively to your book, my guess is that that's what they're really responding to, that it is in many ways humanizing this broad global struggle. Uh, yes, I uh, I hope so. And I was it was actually a very humbling experience to uh, to read that uh, the book, even on Amazon, got uh, 14 uh, five-star reviews. There is nothing uh, else, only 14 reviews, and all of them are five-star. Uh, five so it's not about, uh, you know, uh, it's just a very humbling experience, and it's also, uh, uh, it made me realize that maybe this is the way to go, because, you know, also as a philosopher, I, I want to divorce I want to divorce philosophy from the university, or from the universities, from uh, from academia. I think philosophy belongs to the barricades now. It belongs to the slums. Uh, the same thing with the fiction. Uh, we were living long, uh, you know, decades when fiction and uh, films, both feature and documentary, uh, lost passion. They lost uh, um, ideology. Uh, and uh, I really think uh, people need ideology. I think people need uh, passion. They need uh, uh, they need to also dream. And uh, you know, we, uh, a lot of uh, in the West, a lot of uh, nonfiction uh, writers, a lot of activists, a lot of uh, left wing thinkers, they actually don't read fiction. They That's read. So true. Uh, it's uh, even uh, some of my friends that you would not believe if I would say it, and I better not say it. But I know even some greatest names in a, a left-wing, uh, uh, you know, uh, intellectual uh, uh, milieu, they don't uh, they don't touch uh, a book of poetry. They don't touch a book of uh, uh, fiction. Yet uh, some of the greatest cries for revolution, particularly in Latin America and Russia. Uh, but also in China, uh, were written in uh, poetry. Uh, you know, uh, you cannot uh, imagine uh, revolution in Latin America without uh, names like uh, Ernesto Cardenal or Pablo Neruda. Uh, these are, uh, in Russian uh, revolution, you cannot uh, separate 1917 revolution from uh, people like Mayakovsky. Yep. So uh, there has to be uh, there has to be an inspiration, and people are waiting for it, and it's not coming. And it's somehow uh, we are all writing, or most of our us are writing, how terrible things are, and there is no way out of it, and uh, uh, and the empire is winning, and we are all depressed and suicidal. No, I mean uh, you have to send people to the barricades, and uh, what else than poetry, and what else than uh, 
uh, you know, simple but uh, powerful stories of the people uh, that uh, uh, people that are we are fighting for would do uh, such a thing. Definitely not a theory. People are tired of numbers. They uh, they know that something sinister is going on. But we also know when I came to California uh, last year, I had a big uh, uh, tour. Uh, I was speaking to, and I realized that. Uh, Numbers and uh, information do not inspire anybody, and then you just uh, <laughs> you just start shouting and uh, reading uh, poems and uh, telling people about uh, about simple stories, and suddenly everybody is alive and ready to do something. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I was. It's funny that you're saying that because I actually was just recently having a conversation with someone, and I. I, I posted on social media a picture that I took of a bunch of, um, you know, nonfiction, political and historical books that I pulled off my shelf. And I said, people really should read this. And then I thought to myself, I said, but wait a second. Most of the people that I know who are politically minded, they don't necessarily need my book recommendations on nonfiction work. And so then I did another one of all of, of fiction books that I recommend and poetry that I recommend because, you know, part of my thinking, for example, just as a brief example, you can read all you want about the history of the United States and, and, and manifest destiny and the expansion westward and the genocide of the natives and the war against Mexico and all of these. You could read all of the history you want. But when you read like Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian and you get a sense of the brutality, the real barbarism that is pre present presented to you in this kind of uh, fictionalized with very beautiful language and all of the rest of that. And you, I feel like you get a different kind of experience of the brutality of the American West and of that time period and of that place. And I think it fills out a more well-rounded picture of a particular issue. And I think in some ways it informs our political understanding of issues. Yes, I think definitely. And, uh, you know, the United States uh, fiction, for example, is uh, uh, filled with great uh, examples. And it doesn't have to be uh, always extreme uh, uh, political examples. Uh, even Hemingway, if you read Hemingway carefully, uh, I'm sure the, uh, the reason establishment is so outrage over his machismo and all this. It's actually because uh, uh, there wasn't so much machismo there. If you read uh, carefully, I mean, you have a man who is uh, uh, writing, uh, fighting uh, uh, Nazi submarines of the Miami, but also supports Cuba and uh, ends up in the, uh, in the uh, being experimented or being actually uh, mentally uh, uh, destroyed by the by the intelligence and uh, you know um, once uh, somebody wrote I forgot who it was but she was very critical about uh, Hemingway's machismo and uh, um, I said look I mean if you read uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls here you have a man actually American teacher who goes to fight fascists in Spain and he falls in love with the girl of a young woman who was gang raped by fascists and I said you know it's a very humbling uh, uh, way of uh, describing uh, the war and a very humbling and very actually compassionate, uh, you know, uh, 
thing to do to take somebody. Uh, I said, how many of these uh, sensitive males uh, from the right would dare to actually, uh, you know, uh, open the heart to a woman who was gang raped? You know, and uh, Hemingway's work is full of uh, uh, such examples. I mean, we don't have to write even fully political, uh, heavily political uh, novels, but even like reading Heller's Catch-22 and just yes. laughing at the absurdity of the war, uh, well, how brilliant. Uh, uh, you know, and uh, American literature is full. I mean, Faulkner is full of uh, uh, tremendous... Uh, uh, Nathaniel West... Uh, uh, you know, even Styron, even people who write bestsellers. We don't, uh, again, it's just uh, one uh, name that comes, uh, 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 Caldwell, of course. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's uh, Richard Wright. I have to say. say. I, I, I mean, what is the great, well, where is Richard Wright in Europe? I mean, this is a tremendous uh, American, uh, you know, writer, a novelist, uh, so, um, you know, and these are not uh, books that uh, people cannot read. They are easily digestible, and they are so uh, wonderfully descriptive of the of the horrors that happened in both uh, uh, the Mark Twain. You know, I mean, even Huckleberry Finn or Tom Sawyer. You know, don't you remember Hemingway wrote something very beautiful about it? He said the Huckleberry Finn is the greatest American novel. Uh, but it's only until that moment when uh, children, the, the, the old uh, Jim is returned to children, because after that it's all lie. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> you know, but I, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Nathaniel West, and that really resonates for me because I've I've said this actually in a recent conversation with someone. I said, you know, you can read all of the anti-capitalist literature you want you can read you know marx and whatever else and you know about capitalism and all of these things but if you read nathaniel west a cool million you get a sense of american capitalism in a way that you probably never could in a non-fiction work and that's actually one of the beauties of fiction and of literature and of poetry generally is that it allows you to simultaneously absorb uh, political ideas as most things are in inherently political in, in human society, but at the same time to do it in a way that is not only entertaining and interesting, but that actually tells you something about yourself and about your own life and about your own place in this broader struggle. Yes. And of course, uh, again, uh, we have those passes, uh, Dreiser, there's uh, uh, the, the list of American writers uh, with social uh, consciousness is uh, uh, endless. You know, and uh, I uh, just think that uh, there is something very sick and abnormal that happened in the in Europe and in the United States because uh, you know the novel and the film are by definition political. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, from Le Miserable to to even uh, Stendhal, or, or if you go to the Western classics, they are all to some extent very political. Uh, and uh, so is the film. And we have this uh, moment now in history when suddenly everything is just a, a very cheap and very dangerous entertainment. Uh, two weeks ago, I gave a speech at the Italian parliament. I'm very surprised they allowed me to do it. They invited me actually to do it. And uh, uh, 
the group of people from uh, Five Star Movement, they try to attack NATO and they, they are uh, hoping to dis- uh, uh, you know, destroy NATO. I don't know how successful they will be, but the movement is very powerful. So here I was standing in front of the Italian uh, parliamentarians and peace and delivering absolutely damning speech about European hypocrisy and uh, and about uh, how everything that Europe has is actually built on plunder of the of the uh, of the world. But then at the end, I told them, "Look, I uh, actually grew up uh, on your cinema. You know, as a filmmaker, I I grew up on uh, Fellini, on uh, on De Sica, on Rossellini, on Antonioni, and all that." And I said, "Look, uh, these were your normal. Th- these were the films that were." Uh, seen by millions of people. And I said, look, Italy has a heart. It still has a heart. It's just not internationalist heart. It's a heart that only uh, cares about its own people and themselves. But in the past, it was so, the language of your cinema was so universal, so powerful. And it's all gone. And the same thing goes for fiction. I mean, I'm sure great novels are being written in the West, but now where do great novels come from? They mainly come from Africa. They mainly come from Latin America. They come even from here, from the Middle East and from Asia. Uh, In the West, uh, it was uh, the the new literature is uh, uh, almost, uh, you know, depoliticized. And so is the cinema. Of course, there are examples. There are examples so that uh, uh, prove the rule, but still, it's nothing like in 1950s or 1960s. Yeah, of course. So, and, and, and again, I mean, if you look at yeah, just taking the Italian cinema issue, I mean, it's interesting because get a sense of, if you want to get a sense of, say, you know, the kinds of destruction of World War II, you could watch a documentary, but you could also watch Rome Open City and understand and understand through film, through the images, through the art and the artistry of it, you get a window into, or, or maybe a prism through which you can actually take in the scale of the devastation, the human toll that the war took, and so forth. And also the heroism, if you uh, think about Anna Magnani uh, in that famous scene uh, when she runs after the truck where yes. her uh, husband is being taken, it's probably one of the greatest moments in the in a world cinema, or the General de la Rovere, a man, a crook, who is basically, uh, you know, uh, put as a snitch to the prison uh, to 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 snitch on the on the resistance. And this general actually, because he, everybody believes that he is a national hero of Italy, he uh, drops this horrible, uh, uh, you know. Uh, uh, Life that he has, and he actually becomes this general uh, for at least a short moment uh, mm-hmm. in his life, and he leads his people to the to the rebellion. And these are tremendous stories, of course. Uh, what Italian cinema did, uh, the, uh, you know, the what Fellini, did, the power, the misery, the 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 sex workers, like uh, the the. Nights of in nights of Cabiria, the the poor miserable people in La Strada, it's all there. Uh, the, the 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 sick uh, decadence of the bourgeoisie, the Dolce Vita of Fellini. But so uh, it's uh, it's all 
made it was all made in such a wonderful way that uh, you could uh, sit uh, for the whole night and laugh and cry and at the end you would uh, uh, you would never end up as a right winger i think uh, if you would really understand these films yeah. so it's very it's uh, and this is what they are preventing us to to create and this is what they are preventing us uh, uh, from uh, seeing um. and, and listening to you say all of that, you know, it, it strikes me. I just, I wonder, and I, I don't worry, listeners, we are going to talk some specific politics here, but <laughs> bear with me now. Uh, I, I, hearing what you're saying, it, I can't help but think of someone like Pier Paolo Pasolini, you know, and Pasolini, he does, he's able to convey what, you know, might be called, you know, some, some Marxist ideologies or, you know, left wing radical left-wing politics, class consciousness, class conflict, class war, all of these things, but at the same time, in, in a way that it not only humanizes those at the bottom, but that it makes them real. It, it brings them to life in a way that someone living in New York City in 2016 wouldn't possibly really be able to visualize without that sort of guidestone of someone like a Pasolini, who also, like yourself, like like me, like many others, who didn't see one particular uh, uh, medium of art, like filmmaking, as really the pinnacle of his achievement. Because in in Pasolini's world, the fi- his his films, his poetry, his nonfiction, his film criticism, all connected. Yes, he was a good poet. Uh, but this is exactly what I'm trying to do. You see, for me, uh, uh, the media doesn't matter. They, they ask me, well, who am I really? I'm a, prof- I'm a professional revolutionary, really. You know, hardened in Latin America for many years. So for me, all this media, I choose media as it uh, suits me. For instance, uh, I made uh, five very powerful documentary films for Telesur. Uh, because I couldn't really uh, explain things uh, like uh, Okinawa, U.S. military bases, or what it is really uh, is living in the most horrible slums in Kenya. Uh, is it really a peace? No, I said it's a war zone. Uh, and I needed film for that. And I made films about like, how the West derailed Arab Spring and uh, other things, Turkey. Um, because I couldn't choose other media. Or uh, when I want to really uh, put the uh, record straight about what the empire is doing, then I'm writing long books and uh, uh, long essays. Well, sometimes uh, I function as a photographer, or sometimes I give speeches. So uh, I think there is many different things that uh, uh, many different uh, media that I'm using, but the media is just a uh, uh, means it's not the end. Well, that's you know? you know that's Marshall McLuhan, isn't it? The medium is the message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly right. Okay, let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, um, I wanna I wanna touch on some political issues and some let's call it slightly more uh, theoretical issues because I, I I think that they are really important and you're probably one of the best placed uh, people I know to be able to talk about that. So uh, stick with us on the other side of the break. I continue the conversation with Andre Vilcek. Again, gotta get the book Exposing Lies of the Empire. Stick with us here on Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back.
here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Andre Vilcek. Again, you got to get the book, Exposing Lies of the Empire. This is really one of those, I think, essential books. Even just to just having it on your bookshelf, I think, is really important. This is this is probably one of the most important books you'll read this year. So uh, you should also follow him on Twitter, just to give him a little plug there, at Andre Vilcek. That's A-N-D-R-E-V-L-T-C-H. E.K., Andre Vilcek. Um, so, Andre, I want to continue our conversation, but I, I do want to shift to this question of imperialism because I, I do think it's important. You know, you titled your book Exposing Lies of the Empire, but this question of the, quote-unquote, the empire and what that means and what that actually looks like, because this is, you know, my website is called stopimperialism.org, and I, I write about imperialism. I describe myself as an anti-imperialist, a revolutionary and so forth. But a lot of people, I think, get caught up on what this issue means. And we're not talking just Lenin and, you know, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, but what contemporary imperialism looks like. So maybe we could just start there and just maybe explain to us what you mean when you say the empire and what imperialism in 2016 is in your mind, what it looks like. Well, um, actually, um, I do not make any difference between the United States or North America and Europe. To me, it's one entity. It's one empire. Agreed. And uh, imperialism uh, for me is actually a form of uh, colonialism or colonialism is a form of uh, uh, imperialism. They, they are almost synonymous. Now, what? Uh, let me explain this. The... Uh, uh, and this is actually uh, what I said in Rome two weeks ago. Uh, one thing that nobody, almost nobody in the West wants to understand or uh, uh, really see is that all that we observe in Europe, palaces, theaters, schools, public parks, railroads, uh, so-called culture that they have, so-called uh, you know, uh, a civilization is based on the hundreds of millions of corpses of uh, total destruction of the world, uh, on total destruction of entire cultures. So the West, actually, and I'm being very uh, specific about this, there is no other culture on Earth, and I studied all of them, most of the major ones, um, none of the culture uh, performs such an absolute brutality, such a bestiality as the West uh, did towards uh, the rest of the world. Uh, from the conquest of uh, what is now Latin America and basically murdering more than half of the population there, directly or indirectly, to the to the destruction of the native uh, uh, people in uh, in North America, to absolute uh, horrific, uh, unimaginable brutality in Africa, which you actually have to be in Africa to understand what's happening. You can read the books, but uh, only the stories that you hear again that are uh, passed from generation to generation about slavery, about hunting down people like animals, about uh, about using people like animals, as uh, King Leopold II of Belgium did by killing 10 million people, even at the beginning of the 20th century, to what Brits did to India and or to subcontinent. All these uh, 
you know, uh, famines that they uh, performed. And we are talking about the famines uh, in which five, six million people would die and people would come to somebody uh, like uh, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill from Bengal, uh, people from Bengal would beg him to stop and he would say, well, you are multiplying like rabbits, good for you. And, you know, uh, it's, uh, uh, and you, then you go to Punjab and you see how people were treated there, you know. I mean, adult men would be stripped naked and uh, the whip would be used on them in front of their families and neighbors and all that. But you go to Uganda and my friends in Uganda would tell me that uh, there would be other uh, British uh, uh, colonialists would come and they would... Uh, select the most powerful man from the village and they would tie him up and rape him uh, just to show to the village who is really in charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it's like uh, the stories that uh, I collected all over the world. And don't forget, I lived in Vietnam, you know, and Vietnam to me is not just a American war. What the Europeans want to forget is a French uh, occupation, which exactly. I always wondered, you know, they, they know I, I came to Vietnam with U.S. passport and they left me alone. They were very nice to me, but they were very uh, antagonistic to French. And once I went to Bihoy to, to the beer pub with my friends and I said, guys, what's going on? And they said, well, you know, you bombed us uh, from the sky and you murdered our people. It's horrific. But our women were raped and we were humiliated and uh, uh, for decades, you know, by the French. And uh, we never forgave that. Because in Asian mentality, uh, from Asian mentality, what French did to them was even worse than what uh, the Americans did. So, uh, you know, and so the empire is... Um, about controlling the world. It's not, uh, I find it very naive when people say that uh, it is about oil, it is about this and that. And sure, partially, but uh, uh, these countries are so rich already, Europe and the United States. And it was from the beginning, and it is now about this exceptionalism, about uh, our desire to control, about feeling that they are above others. And uh, uh, this is uh, this is happening uh, uh, for centuries, it's happening now, and this is the final showdown now between the countries that are standing against this Western imperialism. Well, and, and I, I, I want to just jump in there because I do think that that's an important question, and it actually came up in a in a panel discussion that I was doing just a few days ago. Um, uh, we just released a book to which I was a contributor and semi editor for called uh, the Encyclopedia of Imperialism and Anti Imperialism, and I wrote. Uh, Uh, one of the chapters in the book, and I was part of a discussion in presenting the book, and it comes up in conversation. A lot of people on the left, uh, I'm not going to get into, you know, which, which various strands on the left, but people on the left who criticized what I was saying about imperialism as a global system and with a global reach and in seeking global hegemony. And they were basically saying, well, but why do you take the side of Russian imperialism and Chinese imperialism? Don't you see Chinese imperialism in Africa? Don't you see Russian imperialism in Ukraine and so forth? And I I had to push back about that and say that that's a misconception about the nature of contemporary imperialism. Those countries have 
their own self-interests, and they're certainly standing up for those, and they're certainly pursuing their interests, but to describe them as, quote-unquote, competing imperialisms, I think is deeply naive and misguided and completely distorts the reality of contemporary imperialism and the empire. Yes, and it's insulting also to the uh, to these countries because, uh, for instance, China. Uh, you know, I worked in uh, uh, two areas. I lived in two areas where China is very deeply involved. Um, uh, one is Africa, of course, and one is Oceania, and uh, it's absolutely different uh, to read what the Guardian or, or the. Uh, rights or the BBC reports, and it's totally different from talking to the people, to African people on the ground. And uh, like, uh, if you go to the construction sites where Chinese are involved, uh, you hear very often from Chinese uh, workers that this is uh, these are the first foreigners who are treating them like human beings, you know. And uh, actually. Uh, the way the propaganda works, the way the Western propaganda works is this. You have African continent, which was plundered, which has been plundered, where again 10 million people now died, second time in Congo, where Somali people are dying because of the West, where, uh, you know, uh, there is almost nothing left intact, where everything is plundered and destroyed and raped. And then... Uh, Chinese mining company screws up somewhere in Zambia and five or six workers die. Okay, and then the BBC comes and they say, oh, you see? And the way they actually start manipulating things, that these hundreds of millions of human lives destroyed by the West are suddenly somehow uh, um, similar to those, uh, that the situation is presented that it's similar. There's an equivalence. Exactly. And this Chinese company didn't even do it from any malicious reason. They just messed up, you know, as they mess up in their minds, as everybody messes up, every every country, even Chile or any country messes up with oh, minds. But you talk to people in Africa and they are very, very pro-Chinese because they know that China is building hospitals, fighting malaria. Uh, you know, building schools, and they are building railroads and roads too. Uh, and then the West says, "Oh, they do all this. Why? Because they actually want to uh, explore the natural resources and all this." Well, they do that. They have trade, of course, with Africa, but they are also impl- uh, implementing internationalist uh, approach, which they were uh, implementing already during the uh, Cuba, uh, you know, Cuban fight for uh, against South African apartheid in Angola and Namibia and uh, China was behind uh, that as was the Soviet Union. China was always um, for the uh, you know liberation uh, struggle in in Africa. The other part is uh, Oceania. Imagine the situation there. The West already massacred the environment. Everything, the, the, at least three countries that I know, Marshall Islands, Tuvalu, and Kiribati, are becoming uninhabitable. And I, I wrote an entire book about it called Oceania. And, you know, Chinese came uh, to several of these countries and they tried to help. They, they uh, plant mangroves. They built uh, protective walls. Uh, nobody writes about it. Nobody talks about it. They built schools, stadiums, uh, 
stadium are very important because in some countries, like 95% of people have diabetes because they eat absolute junk imported from Australia and New Zealand and uh, uh, whatever. So sports uh, is very important. Chinese build stadiums, they build schools, they build uh, medical facilities. When they do very well, you know what the West does? They encourage Taiwan to come to these countries and to actually... Uh, corrupt the governments, so they recognize them as an independent country. Now, not even U.S., not even European countries recognize Taiwan as an independent country. And the deal is, in China, China breaks diplomatic relations if somebody, you know, recognizes Taiwan as an independent state. So they are pitching these... uh, uh, the West is pitching the, the these uh, Pacific islands, which uh, are actually surviving mainly because of the goodwill of China. They are pitching them against China just for their political games. Yeah. It's insane. It's insane what they are doing. The other thing that I want to just note, uh, since I'm sure you've encountered this, I encounter it all the time. Uh, people ask me, well, how come you're always defending dictators? And then I and then I have to push back a little bit and I say, okay, specify what you mean, right? So, for instance, one that I got hammered for by multiple people was my uh, spirited defense of Eritrea. I have a lot of Eritrean friends. I I, I know a number of people. Me I, too. I you know they invited me to come over there. Hopefully, I can go this year at some point or next year. Um, I spoke at an Eritrean conference this past summer, and what I talk about with Eritrea is not that every single aspect of their political system is 100% exactly the way that it needs to be, but rather that the reason that the empire targets a country like Eritrea is because it beats an independent development path for itself, one that is not dependent on the IMF or the World Bank. It is actually trying to use its own human resources and human capital to develop itself, and Eritrea is still the only country in Africa to meet its Millennium Development Goals, eradicating HIV to to a large extent, malaria, uh, vaccination programs, all of these things which are really unheard of in much of the rest of Africa, so-called democratic Africa. And I have to push back to these people and I say, wait a second, you're saying that these are quote-unquote dictatorships and whatever, but at the same time, you're completely ignoring the material reality of the country and what people are actually doing to benefit themselves and to improve their lives. And so I then question the kind of propaganda that is embedded in people's minds when they make such statements. Yes, even people from the left. And Eritrea, especially people from the especially left. people from the left. Yes, uh, and Eritrea is a very good example. And I visited Eritrea. I wrote a lot of articles about it, and I met uh, people there. Uh, I traveled all over the place, actually, and I was very, very impressed because uh, it's a brave, very proud uh, nation. Uh, which is uh, which fought absolutely horrific uh, uh, war. Uh, it was uh, totally devastated. I just want to interject for listeners. In Eritrea, uh, this was a former colony of Ethiopia that won an independence war against Ethiopia. And in retreating, Ethiopia used what we would call slash and burn tactics, where they literally devastated the entire country, depriving it of agriculture and everything else. So this is a country independent for 25 years, which started from less than zero. 
Yes, exactly. And now if you look at uh, what's happening there, their, their, their development model is their own. It's fantastic. It's a second country uh, in terms of generating uh, uh, electric sol- solar uh, uh, energy uh, you know, per capita. It's, uh, it is a very good education system. Uh, um, but then again, it's also a country which is uh, uh, working uh, in this uh, internationalist realm uh, uh, when, let's say, China built a fantastic hospital there and uh, Cubans are working there. It's a very uh, interesting model. And I, uh, I left the country with uh, many friends and uh, 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 real promise to come back uh, there. And, you know, we talk about uh, freedom and all this. They, they are not afraid uh, of uh, their friends. I was put in front of the national TV and they let me, they interviewed me for 30 minutes live. Uh, they put me to the hall full of uh, top intellectuals, and I gave them a speech, and which ended up actually by by us shouting at each other different ideas, and many of them didn't agree with me about uh, things like I don't know um, Russia or China or something because they had some issues with Russians in the past. But uh, um, I mean, there is a lot of. Uh, there is, it's a very vibrant, uh, intellectually very vibrant place, and it's. Uh, uh, I was definitely uh, oh, very impressed. Uh, other place I was impressed was Zimbabwe, of course, the country with the highest literacy rate in the uh, on the African continent. They bypassed Tunisia. Uh, again, you see here so much garbage about. Uh, Zimbabwe, and then you go there, and it's just uh, you, I came there from Nairobi. Nairobi, the the window, uh, the shopping uh, window of the West, uh, you know, the ca- of capitalism and all this. Nairobi, where sixty percent of the population lives in slums, mm-hmm. you know. And I came to Zimbabwe, where there is only one slum, and it's a, like one square kilometer British kind of former. Uh, transfer station, which is not even a slum, it's just a kind of dilapidated houses. So anyway, it's uh, just one lie, uh, you know, mounting on another uh, when it comes to the uh, Western propaganda. Also, what uh, w- what the problem is with the le- uh, left wing in the West, that they, they, le- they lost, they lost... Uh, Almost everything. They are not capable of winning one single election. They are not inspiring anybody. But they are so arrogant. They are reserving rights to judge every uh, nation on earth. And, you know, as an internationalist, I'm so sick of it. I mean, they are talking about China as it would be some kind of a five-years-old kid. I mean, it's one of the oldest cultures on earth. It's the most populous nation on earth. It's a it's a very progressive communist uh, model, which they don't want to see as a model. And they actually are uh, in, in the West, and they actually reserve the rights to judge China whether it, whether it is communist or not. Now, all my fellow philosopher friends uh, who live in Beijing from the West, they believe it's a, a very it's a very uh, it's a communist model. Uh, not very typical for the West, but uh, China is not a Western country. The same with Russia. I mean, Russia always has to be, uh, you know, answer for its uh, deeds to the to the Western uh, left. Oh, it's not communist anymore. It's not socialist anymore. It's not this, not that. No, it's not. But it is a socialist. Uh, 
a foreign policy uh, which uh, continues by inertia, it uh, does uh, have uh, huge uh, positive changes in social structure. I mean, uh, uh, what we saw under Yeltsin was absolute disgrace, and Yeltsin was a uh, pro-Western puppet, and uh, people were basically dying on the streets, uh, and uh, uh, academics were selling the libraries in the underpasses and metro stations in Novosibirsk and elsewhere. I saw all this, uh, and uh, salaries were not paid, and the life expectancy of Russian people dropped to the, uh, you know, uh, AIDS uh, uh, suffering sub-Saharan uh, Africa. So all this changed, in the, and it is much more socialist than uh, what it was before. But it is always this arrogance, or South Africa, for heaven's sake, you know. I mean, anybody who knew South Africa after apartheid and who sees it now, see this tremendous progress. I go to slums like Alexandra outside of Joburg. Uh, I was I, I'm, I go to South Africa all the time. I love the country. Okay, and then uh, you know all we read is how ANC is corrupt and ANC is this and that. It's not left wing. Sure, it's not communist ANC, but ANC has a women's uh, wing and youth wing, and they are uh, communist. And then uh, this terrible issue in Matukana mine, right? Uh, like uh, everybody said, oh, this is the end of the ANC. It, it's the same like uh, during the apartheid. So I went to Matukana. And what did I find out? I talked to the miners. I talked to, you know, the, the case when the, 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 uh, this huge mine and the protests by workers and the police opened fire and killed many uh, many workers, miners. So I went there, I talked to them, and what did I hear? They said, they, you know whom the, most of them blame? They blame the British company that owns the mine. And they said yeah. they actually paid the police for the... Well, for and, the and also one of the, one of the um, what you might call neoliberal capitalist uh, uh, figureheads in South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa is one of the leading people who is uh, sort of blamed for that issue, Not because who's now uh, one of the most important people in the government, but it has to do also with the NUMSA, the National Union of Mine Workers, and this was what we call a wildcat strike, a yes. strike that was unsanctioned by the, uh, the, the union bureaucracy. So there's a lot of sort of interesting internal dynamics taking place in South Africa. And as we see right now, just to just to finish that point, you know, now you have this question of the EFF and, and the rising up against the ANC government. Is this being manufactured for the purposes of removing a government that is allied with that is a member of the so-called BRICS that is aligning itself increasingly with the emerging economies of the non-Western world? Is this yet another example of the empire? deeming that people that they thought were puppets aren't actually 100% puppets. Exactly. Uh, what is happening in South Africa is that uh, uh, we are, uh, South Africa, like uh, Venezuela, like uh, uh, China, like Russia, is, uh, is a target of, uh, of uh, uh, very powerful uh, propaganda that is being uh, uh, channeled from the West, but also from the local uh, media networks. Uh, yes. We see the same thing in Latin America, of course. 
so uh, you are not supposed to see what you see. I mean, I, I remember working in Alexandra, in Soweto, in all, you name it, the slums around uh, Johannesburg. Now, Soweto, I don't even want to mention because Soweto is a middle-class uh, suburb, uh, lower-middle-class suburb with virgin uh, with virgin gyms and uh, Brazilian busways uh, uh, and uh, cinemas and great art galleries and eateries and all this. So let's forget about Soweto. Uh, but uh, even Alexandra, I was shocked, you know. I mean, there is a, uh, there is a great, there are great, great medical posts, and there are playgrounds for children, schools, uh, new schools, hospitals. It's really optimistic. The country is optimistic. The country is growing. Uh, it, it has free medical care, unlike the United States. Uh, you know, it has uh, uh, free education. It has great uh, libraries. Uh, you know, they're building uh, public transportation wherever you go. Yeah, it's a, it's a success story in many ways. Yeah. And wanna... uh, you cannot change. You cannot change this mentality. Of course, there are big problems. I was uh, invited. Uh, I was the only philosopher invited to speak at the International uh, Symposium of Psychologists uh, uh, for Peace. And actually, uh, part of it, it was organized by UNISA. UNISA is a great university, right? I mean, it's giving scholarships all over the Africa and beyond. And the professors from UNISA uh, made the experiment. They brought us to the to a uh, meeting between the uh, ANC government and very angry uh, people from the uh, from the poor uh, rural uh, slums, actually. And it was incredible how outspoken everything is and everybody is and uh, and all that. And uh, I also couldn't help it. I gave them also a little speech. I said, look, to the farmers, I said, look, this is your government. This is not perfect. It's, it sucks. It has so many... Uh, it makes so many errors. But this is the best you will have. It's, and it's the best you had in centuries. This is not going to... You have to engage this government. It's... Uh, you know, you have to trust it at least to the point that you will not uh, uh, say that uh, oh, it cannot be dealt with because it did so many good things too. It didn't do only. It didn't only, uh, you know, uh, suffered from corruption and uh, other ills. It it uh, built your schools. It built your hospitals. It changed the legal system. You are the freest country on earth. It's a it's a place where nobody is afraid of anything. You can uh, poor people can walk anywhere, anywhere they can walk to. Any mall, the richest, the most expensive mall in India, which they call the largest democracy in the world, you know, in India, you cannot go to the mall if you are poor. I saw this. I mean, I uh, in Delhi, you have these malls there, like uh, gold-plated toilets and everything. But if uh, you go and two, two kilometers from there are slums, and I go, to, I talk to the people in the slums, I said, have you been inside? They said, where? I said, the mall. What is mall? I said, well, this big house there. Oh, okay. I said, yeah, we tried. Two people tried to enter. They beat, it, beat it us up. Yeah. You know, yeah. the guards. I well, mean, so this is the difference between India and South Africa. I, I have to tell you, you know, what you're talking about is exactly uh, 
what I what I just experienced. I just uh, two, uh, less than well two months ago came back from Venezuela. I was in Venezuela for the elections in December, and uh, on you know on as part of a delegation, and you know the country is under such an extreme form of economic warfare and uh, destabilization and subversion of all kinds, political, economic, social, cultural, and, and, and so forth that, um, you know, I was going around and I went to working class neighborhoods such as the 23rd of January neighborhood and many others, yeah. traditional strongholds of uh, socialism, of Chavismo and so forth. And a lot of these places actually ended up voting for for the right wing in this last election. And it's not because they're not supportive of socialism. It's not because they're, uh, you know, uh, don't adhere to anti-imperialism. It's because they've, they've now fallen into the trap set for them by the empire in, in Venezuela's case, of course, by the United States directly, uh, such that the psychological manipulation where the people identify their problems with that of the government. So if you can't find toilet paper, if you can't find deodorant or sunscreen, it's not the fault of the owners of the capital, it's not the fault of the distribution networks which are in the hands of the right wing which had used to own the country until Chavez came to power, no, it's the fault of Maduro, it's the fault of the government and if you could just vote against the socialists if you could just get rid of them then things will get better and this actually was said to me by people who are supportive of Chavez, who love Chavez and I remember talking to one young woman, we were riding the sky tram which connects the uh very poor shanty town sort of neighborhood in the hills with the rest of caracas now before chavez that was not functional it did not actually exist and people had to walk down to get to the city now they take this very very modern sky tram which cuts down you know gets you down to the city in less than 10 minutes and we were talking to this young woman and she had voted for the socialist party and she said it's not because i don't know that there's corruption. It's not because I don't know that things are bad. It's because I know that this tram exists because of that government, that this is part of the progress of the Bolivarian revolution. And what really upset her more than anything was how many people in her own neighborhood, poor people, voted for the right wing as if they thought that somehow this tramway just came out of nowhere like it was given by God. And she said, either they're ignorant or they simply don't understand. But soon enough, they will understand the ramifications of what they've done. And that was a really powerful conversation I had with her. And that was the general tone from a lot of people in Venezuela. Yes, and these uh, sky trams, uh, the uh, cable cars basically are, uh, if you look at the stations closely, some of them have libraries, some of them have uh, centers for Community centers and medical facilities and all of that, yes. Women who before couldn't work, they can leave now their ch- their infants, their children, uh, and uh, for to 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 get a uh, care to to get um, daycare. Uh, yeah, yeah, daycare. But uh, look, uh, to those who don't understand what is happening in Latin America, I can just give you one very simple example. I think this will clarify everything. You know, I lived and worked in Latin America for many years in the past. I have friends from, of course, from the left, most of them from the left, but I also know business people in uh, uh, in uh, places like Bolivia, for example. Mm-hmm. In Bolivia, after the after uh, Evo Morales took uh, uh, 
uh, became a president of the country, I talked to one of the people that I knew, and he belongs to, I don't want to name him, but he is from this one of the leading uh, Bolivian families. Father is a senator, they have newspapers, uh, they have uh, their own industry and all this. You know what he told me? He said, we will... We will screw this bloody, dirty Indian guy to the backside. Because, and you know how we are going to do it. We don't care. We have so much money. We don't care really how much, how many millions we are going to lose. Uh, we have plenty of money. So we will just do it because we want our power back. So we are going to create deficit. We are going to, uh, and by creating deficits, we are going to lose again so much money. But we don't care. Yeah. We are going to bombard him with the negative message. He just does. He knows who I am. He's not afraid to tell me. This was over a beer, you know. And uh, this is how all this uh, so-called opposition in Ecuador, in yes. uh, Venezuela, is operating. It's so primitive. They did it before. They did it in uh, Chile before 9 11 1973, before the coup of General Pinochet. They did exactly the same thing. The, the, they mobilized the right-wing truck unions. They blocked the roads. They created deficits. You couldn't have toilet paper. You couldn't have uh, uh, rice. You couldn't have potatoes uh, in the exactly, country. Exactly produces. what's happening in Venezuela today. Exactly that, what's happening in Venezuela today. I, I, I spoke with the former ambassador to the United Nations who's trained as an economist, a man named Julio Escalona, who talked about, just as one example, just to back up what you're saying there, Andre, he talked about the main company that uh, that that runs the chicken processing plants in Venezuela and he said how the owner of the of the plant and the and the, of the distribution networks that literally takes the chickens from the chicken coop to the supermarket and does all the steps in between from slaughtering to processing to packaging and all of that and what they did was they simply shut down the main factory which accounts for 70% of the country's chicken production and continued to pay the workers not to produce thereby creating a chicken shortage. And this is all deliberate that they take these consumer goods and they just sell them in Colombia rather than in Venezuela, despite the fact that they can get a better deal in Venezuela. And they do it to destabilize the government. These are the sorts of dirty tricks that capital and the empire uses to reassert its authority in those places that have broken free. Exactly. And uh, in Venezuela, it... uh began right from the uh, start after uh, uh, Chavez took uh, became pr- uh, president uh, I went to uh, Caracas and uh, uh, I saw what the media was doing there it was incredible you know uh, all these young journalists in their newspapers and the t- TV stations they would uh, uh, invite me to go drinking and they would cry on my shoulder at night and saying, oh my God, we are supporting Commandante Chavez, but there is nothing we can do because they are going to, the owners of this right-wing uh, uh, media that we work for would kick us out if we would write one positive line about him. And you know, this is uh, happening until now. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And, 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 and it's one of the it's major one of the criticisms that a lot of people can level against uh, the Bolivarian Revolution was that unlike Castro 50 years earlier, they didn't simply expropriate the media. They didn't simply, uh, you know, give the give the ruling class, the right wing, you know, one way tickets to Miami that they tried to do it in a democratic fashion. And in so doing, on the one hand, they maintained sort of the democratic strictures of their system. At the same time, here you have a situation more than 15 years later, and they're still being constantly slandered by the majority of the media, which is in the hands of the former ruling establishment. And this is true in Ecuador. This is true in Bolivia. In Ecuador, at this very moment, we have a destabilization campaign where the president, Rafael Correa, just sacked the entire corrupt leadership of the military. And now immediately we have out in the streets a so-called opposition protest demanding the resignation of the of, of the president. Same thing is happening in Brazil against Dilma Rousseff. The same thing is happening all over the region and particularly Latin America, which because of Chavez and the growth of the Bolivarian revolution and Bolivarian ideals and principles had really moved out of the orbit of the empire to a large extent. Now we see the empire pushing back. We see it in Argentina with, yes. the, with the neoliberal government there now. We see it in Brazil, in all of these places. It, the game of empire doesn't stop even after you seize power. And, uh, you know, last year I traveled intensively again in Ecuador and in Brazil. And uh, this time I visited uh, Brazil properly. You know, I went to the Amazonia, I went to Manaus, I went to Belém, uh, I went to Recife, to, to Salvador, Bahia, everywhere, you name it, to Brasilia. And, you know, uh, I saw such a great progress in Brazil. I mean, I went to the, I talked to the uh, indigenous people, for example, around Manaus and uh, they would tell me how much was done for them and how things changed. And uh, I don't want to go to details, but it all ended up in Sao Paulo when I was riding this wonderful metro system with my Cuban friend. And I told him, wow, this is one of the most beautiful subway systems in the world. He said, well, don't tell it to the local people because they think it's total crap. I say, what do you mean? I said, well, because this is what they re- uh, hear from O Global, and this is what they read in the newspapers. Because they tell them that uh, all these great things are actually uh, nothing. Yeah. They um, start to believe it. And they, in Ecuador, the same thing. Look, I knew I was covering the civil war in Peru next door in 1991, 1992. I know how Quito looked. It was horrible. It was terrible. You had gangrenous... Uh, children begging on the street. It was filthy. It was totally, you couldn't, if you were a cholo, if you were an indigenous person, you couldn't even enter theater. Now all the culture is free, like in Brazil. You go to the national theater, it's free, and it uh, performs the things for the indigenous people. It, uh, you know, medical posts are everywhere. For old people, they want to go to the park, public parks, to exercise. There are containers with dogs. Doctors, they tell them uh, how to exercise, to do uh, whatever. In the middle of the parks, you have uh, beautiful libraries with free Wi-Fi, all this. It's such a positive energy everywhere. And you talk to the indigenous people and they are, not, they are finally, again, owners of their land and their city. And they laugh and they smile and they, uh, and they joke with you. There is none of this heaviness from the past. But... 
you know, all the majority, not majority, but big group of the people is against the president and against the government because uh, they are being constantly bombarded with this stuff about corruption, about all this corruption is always uh, brought up to the uh, to the when uh, Brazilian government, Ecuadorian government, Venezuelan government is concerned. And I say corruption of what? I mean, remember how it used to be in the past. People were uh, children were raped in front of their parents. People were disappearing in many of these countries. People were the, the entire uh, the, there was a worse distribution uh, of wealth disparities of wealth anywhere in the world in Latin America. I mean, that was corruption. That was moral corruption. That was total, total essential corruption. Uh, What are you talking about now? First of all, you cannot change fully society and eradicate uh, corruption in 20 uh, years or 10 years or 15. But even compared to what it was before, it's a joke. Yes, exactly. This corruption is a joke. Well, and also one of the things that I always bring up, actually a couple of things, is that when they talk about that in particularly, you know, there's a there's a sort of a neo-colonial attitude about corruption as if corruption is something that only exists in the global south where these people pocket money in order to, you know, exchange favors and so forth. Never thinking about what kinds of the scale of corruption that we see in places like Wall Street and Washington, in the city of London, in Brussels and in Frankfurt and in these places where the scale of corruption is so, so many times uh, exponentially greater and exponentially more destructive on a global scale. And I always bring that up to, to demonstrate that corruption, quote unquote corruption, is really one of the most loaded propaganda terms that there that there is. And it's one of the weapons, one of the more potent weapons that the empire uses to beat over the head any country that dares to stand in opposition. And that is true all over the globe. And the other point I make about that, too, is that you have to also realize that culture, I'm sorry, corruption is a culture. There is a culture of corruption. And oftentimes it is in the legacy of the colonial past that corruption is embedded and that it becomes almost an absolute necessity, a a fundamental feature of how politics and, 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 uh, you know, society works such that when you achieve a certain position of power, your family, your friends, your neighbors expect you to be corrupt, to help them, to do what you got to do to advance their issues. So these sorts of things are so deeply rooted and so deeply institutionalized that no democratic transition of power or even a revolutionary seizure of power necessarily eradicates corruption overnight or even in 10 years or in 15 years. This is a multi-generational process, but of course the empire won't allow that. Of course. And uh, actually, corruption was injected by the empire. It was uh, brought to these countries. Uh, uh, you know, once uh, in 1992, I was in Cusco in Peru, and I was uh, talking to some uh, uh, philosophy professor there. Uh, and uh, he was drunk, but he was very coherent. He said, look, uh, I mean, uh, they call Peruvians thieves. And yes, we are thieves, but before the Europeans came, before the Spaniards came, we had no perception of theft. You know, everything was socially owned. There was uh, there was no stealing or anything. They uh, came, they robbed us of everything. 
You know, they took everything from us. And then now they tell us that we are, uh, we are thieves. I mean, of course, we learned from them mm -hmm. how to steal. We learn how to be corrupt. That's it's exactly all, right. It's totally clear. These, most of these nations were not really, uh, it was not in their lexicon to be, you know, corrupt or to, to steal. But I mean, if, if everything is stolen from you in front of your nose and uh, more than half of your population is so... Uh, uh, slaughtered then what do you expect to become exactly right i couldn't i couldn't have said that better myself well i could probably talk to you for days and days but i, I we're gonna have to end it there and i know it's late where you are so um again i mean you heard it here listeners this is i mean this is some of the most important information i think you could possibly get you gotta get the book exposing lies of the empire by andre vilcek uh follow him on twitter at andre vilcek go to his website support andre's work it, it, he, it is indispensable. Andre Vilcek, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Eric Reis, oh, sir, thank you so much. And I hope to be back. And uh, we should talk for days and days. It's actually fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. Listeners, thank you as always. I'll speak to you again real soon.